welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and every week I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. This week we are continuing on in our spooky season series with the episode this week on animals capable of mind control. These are parasites, fairly similar creepy level as the parasitoid wasps, so some listeners' discretion is advised moving on with this episode, if, if you would like to continue listening or not. But parasite mind control is pretty nifty, so I would encourage you to continue listening, unless parasites emerging from bugs gives you the heebie-jeebies. Um, it's not uncommon for parasites to somehow influence the behavior of the host in some way, shape, or form for the benefit of the parasite. Thinking back to the parasitoid wasps we talked about in episode 4, in species that parasitize spiders, they will sometimes make the spider hosts weave cocoons for the wasp larvae to pupate in. There are also several other parasites out there that influence their host in order to increase the likelihood of the host being eaten by a further host down the line, so another predator. Sometimes this happens because the parasite causes the host to no longer have a fear response. There will be a nice little break from parasites after this episode, but there will be some other future episodes about some of these other behavior-altering parasites because they are really cool systems, so we'll keep an eye out for those. But this week, we are going to be talking about nematomorph worms, commonly known as hairworms, horse hairworms, or gordian worms, all stemming from different lore around the worm. The one that I'm most familiar with, with it being referred to as the horse hair worm, comes from an old idea that a hair from horses would fall into a puddle of water and then come to life. I have seen a couple of nematomorph worms before, one emerging from what I think was a cricket on my balcony, and another that was just chilling on a trail around mammoth caves It must have fairly recently emerged. And thinking of that one, if you did see it in a puddle, I could see where you would think it was a hair from a horse come to life. They are very thin worms, and the one that I saw was kind of a brownish tannish color, but they can come as in black as well, so I could see where if you just didn't know, or people might be confused. Hence the morph part of the name. Nematomorph worms look fairly similar to nematodes, which you may know of as roundworms, and nematodes are considered the closest living relative to nematomorphs. They occur globally primarily in and around freshwater uh, sources, except for the Arctic areas. There are a few marine species that mostly parasitize crabs and extraordinarily rarely lobsters, but the incredible majority of species are freshwater. As of 2008, there are around 326 species known globally, but there is an estimated diversity of about 2,000 species, so we do think there are more out there to be discovered. All freshwater species parasitize arthropods, specifically insects. Some hosts could include beetles, praying mantises, crickets, grasshoppers, and even cockroaches. Larval nematomorphs will often be eaten and then insist into an intermediate host, like a fly, that may be eaten by the final host. In other cases, the final host will just directly eat the larval worm. The worm will then develop um, within the host into an adult worm, within the final host, 
into an adult worm, with the adult often growing to 3-4 to four inches. Adults don't feed, so the worms do all of their fat and energy storing as it feeds as it's developing in the hosts. It also happens that multiple worms can infect a single host, sometimes with two to four worms being found within an individual. As you can imagine, that is a lot of worm to have inside a bug, especially since things like crickets really aren't that big. Uh, so the nematomorph worms are really almost in all cases much longer than the body length of the host. So the worm does end up taking the incredible majority of the host's body cavity space with the exception of the head and the legs. When the worm emerges, death is not quite guaranteed. Some host individuals do survive, but there is a high mortality rate within the first week after emergence. But as expected with having a worm longer than your body length growing inside you, even if you survive, there is some internal damage. In the bug world, females are frequently larger than males, so they do tend to be more likely to survive, but they often will have reduced reproductive success if they are even if they are even able to produce eggs at all. In males, the individuals that survive the worm are completely castrated and can no longer reproduce. So where this mind control comes in. In order for the horsehair worm to emerge from the host, the host has to enter water. Whether that's a river, a pond, a puddle, really any source of fresh water will do as long as the bug is recently submerged. Most bugs get the water they need to survive from their food, so they really don't approach water sources normally to drink much, and they definitely don't approach a river and just cannonball on in. For bugs, going for a casual swim increases your chances of death from things like predators and drowning. You know, like most things. However, when a bug is infected by a horsehair worm, they appear to seek out water and uncharacteristically hop right on in. Once in the water, the horsehair worm begins to emerge pretty immediately, and after several minutes is fully emerged and begins the search for a mate. If you do have a bit of morbid curiosity about this process, there are actually quite a few YouTube videos of horsehair worms emerging from their hosts. I know there are several videos of crickets, and I saw a thumbnail video from one e emerging from a mantid, a praying mantis. So if you do want to see what this looks like, uh, go and take a look. Now there have been several studies published investigating this mind control and behavior altering ability of the horsehair worm. There have been questions before as to whether the worm causes the host to seek out water and is therefore attracted to it, or if instead of manipulation, the host is just collaborating with the parasite to bring it water in, or to bring it to water in order to save itself. We need to know the motivations here. In one study by Thomas and colleagues, researchers took both infected and uninfected crickets and placed them one by one in what sounded like a bit of a Y-shaped enclosure, maybe a T-shaped. One arm had water and one without. They then kept track of which direction the, cr the crickets took in order to determine if they are indeed seeking out water if they are infected, or if it's just a happenstance thing and they just dive into the water when they find it. With their results, they were unable to make definitive conclusions. About half of the infected crickets in the study entered the water within 15 minutes, 
but very and very few uninfected crickets entered the water at all. Since only half of the infected crickets sought out water, it seemed that the presence of water didn't go into the crickets decision making of which branch to visit, but if they did find water, they promptly hopped in. With this, they did conclude that it was possible that the crickets weren't necessarily seeking out water, but instead their behavior was just altered to be more erratic, which would increase the chances that they will encounter water. Or there is also the possibility that they just no longer perceive the dangers associated with going for a swim, so they just ploop, hop in. Regardless of the motivation, uh, this study published back in 2002 was the first official publication to document that infected individuals do indeed enter the water more than uninfected bugs. And before this, it was just a series of observations and anecdotal evidence. In a slightly more recent study back in 2005, Byron and colleagues were trying to see if it was true behavioral manipulation and mind control going on to cause the host insects to enter the water, or if the host was caught in some odd negotiating collaborative scheme with its parasite. They also studied crickets actually in the same location as the Thomas study, and proposed that since female crickets that released the worm in water had a greater chance of surviving and developing eggs and producing offspring than females that did not release worms, they may be in a more collaborative relationship with the worm instead of the situation being strictly controlled by the worm. So this would make it a situation where the cricket kind of agrees to bring the worm to water in order to salvage its ability to produce offspring, so both individuals involved can go on to have babies, everyone wins. If this were the case, you would expect to see an infected cricket to have comparable reproductive success as an uninfected cricket, even if it's still a bit reduced. What they found instead was a very significant reduction in reproductive success in females if they were able to reproduce at all, and male surviving worms were completely castrated regardless of the efforts of the cricket to bring the host to water. And remember, these are also of the crickets that survived emergence of the parasite anyway. So with this, they were able to confirm that the worms are indeed modifying and manipulating host behavior, and the hosts are not in a weird co collaborative relationship with the parasite. If we would like to end on a slightly positive note, you will be happy to know that horsehair worms do not infect people and often exist in low densities and are also very well camouflaged. So your chances of running into one of these and also knowing you ran into one of them are very slim. They also parasitize bugs that we consider pests towards agricultural crops, so they do also serve as a bit of biological control. If you do want to find one, just start hanging around some rivers, puddles, maybe a reservoir, or just get a nice bucket of water and some crickets. And if you see a bug cannonballing into the water, you may have just found an infected bug. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to next week's episode, continuing on in our spooky season series. Please rate and review on iTunes and Podbean if you're there. And you can also find me on Amazon Music and Audible. Keep an eye out for the upcoming Patreon to help support this podcast. But in the meantime, make be sure to share us with someone you know that could use some more creepy animal facts in their life. If you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, 
Send it on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com and it may be featured in a future episode. Audio editing and recording is done by me, Olivia Streit. The intro music was created by Kaylee Streit. Thank you for listening.